Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. This morning our the title of our uh, sermon is Revolution, of course from the Beatles song uh, Revolution. Well, I tried to do something this week and, I, and I'm going to give you this homework to, to do this week. I want you to go and find a rock and roll song from the last 70 years of the history of rock and roll. Find one that is about submission to authority, okay? So go out there. That's your homework for this week. Find a rock and roll song from the last 70 years of history about submission to authority. Okay, that would be the hardest homework that you were ever given. And I almost can guarantee you that none of you will be able to find that song because the nature of rock and roll throughout its history has been not submission to authority but rebelling and revolting from authority now the beatles song revolution is just about as close to an to an anti-revolutionary song as you can get it says if you want a revolution well you know i can't you know we all want to change the world and, and those sorts of things and really what that song is about is about not revolting, but finding the path of peace, love, harmony, good vibes and good feelings, and going along with the, not the status quo, but the flow of the world and all of this sort of stuff. The, the Beatles in 1968, when that song came out, of course, were responding to uh, what they saw as the, the warmongering and entering the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and also they were just beginning to dabble into their uh, Eastern mysticism phase and all of that sort of stuff. And they were encouraging young people to choose the path of peaceful resistance. But even in that path of peaceful resistance, it was a song, and it is a song, about rebelling against authority. And it's interesting to me that if you go back and look at the lives of those individuals themselves, the four Beatles, that their lives had nothing to do with peace, love, and harmony, that they were actually uh, violent men. And, and John Lennon especially was a, 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 spousal, a spousal abuser and was a violent man himself. It's interesting that they sang about those sorts of things, peace, love, and good feelings, but themselves didn't practice it. And you see that a lot out in the world, don't you? Well, Solomon's answer to how we, how we respond to authority is different than the way the world tells us we should respond. Uh, and in this passage, I think what Solomon does is he teaches us uh, not how to revolt, but how we can have peace in this life. And he does so in three ways. So let me read this for us. This is, again, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, and we're going to read the entire chapter. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. This is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in, evil cause, in an evil cause, for he does whatever pleases him. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? 
No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man has power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because of the sentence against the, an evil deed is not executed, executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him go, this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the works of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this word. Our Father, we thank you once again for giving us your word, uh, the word that is, uh, that is our life and is the light unto our feet. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage, that we would uh, be able to understand our, our own hearts, our own, uh, our own sinful tendency to rebel against authority, and ultimately to rebel against you. And we pray even in this passage that we would see Jesus Christ more clearly, that we would uh, desire to submit to him and fear him over all things in this world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to look at this passage in three ways. And I think first of all we see in verses 1 through 9, very clearly that Solomon says, keep the king's commands. So that's the first, the first point is keep the king's commands. But a couple, couple of uh, conversations with other pastors this week uh, about the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, one of those pastors was an RUF campus minister. And I was talking to him about the book of Ecclesiastes. And I was telling him how I was approaching this book uh, and preaching through it chapter by chapter. And he said, well, that was a foolish thing to do. <laughs> I was like, well, thanks. I appreciate that. And he said, well, as an RUF campus minister, he could go week to week and kind of pick and choose the themes that he wanted to deal with. And I just thought it was funny that he said, but it's foolish to preach this way through the book of Ecclesiastes when it's dealing with what is foolishness. Well, maybe it is foolish to do it this way. Uh, but I also have in the back of my mind a, a conversation that I had with a, a seminary professor of mine who talked about the book of Ecclesiastes, not as wisdom literature, but as anti-wisdom literature. And he said uh, that he read the book of Ecclesiastes uh, in, in a fairly sarcastic way or in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, meaning that this book was not a, a way to tell us uh, what wisdom actually was, but was to show us a man who was foolish and how he pursued wisdom and, and all of this. And, and 
And I attempted to understand the book of Ecclesiastes in that way. But then I come to a passage like this, and I don't think you can read this as anti-wisdom. I think this is actually the height of wisdom in many ways. And so I, I don't necessarily take his reading, my seminary professor's reading of this book. I think this chapter focuses in on this issue of authority and, and how we respond to authority. And I don't know if you, you've paid attention to this, but who we pay attention to or who we, who we actually trust as an authority is a very big deal in our world. We always are listening to an authority and we are always asking for other people to speak into our lives. And we listen to people to give us wisdom. It's just a matter of who we listen to. And again, I think this chapter uh, tells us how we should respond to authority. And here's what Solomon says. Here's the, the height of wisdom. And this is one of the main things you need to get from this passage. That wisdom equals submission to authority. Wisdom equals submission to authority. It is wise for you to recognize who is in charge and for you to submit to them. And I would say, well, in, in this passage, he's talking specifically about the king, submitting to the king or submitting to the government, whoever is over you. That's kind of the height of wisdom here. And this is one of the questions that the, the Bible is primarily dealing with. Who has authority over your life? And you can read all over the place in the Bible. From the very beginning of Genesis, you can read about who has authority and who we should be listening to. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, very clearly, God is our authority. And yet in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve decide that they are going to reject his authority. And we see all of the results of that. And then the rest of the Bible is really asking this question, who has authority? Who are you expecting to be an authority? Do you have authority or does God have an authority? And then how all of those things work out. That's really what the Bible is about. It's a book about authority. And so Solomon says, if you want to live wisely in the world, you need to live in submission to God's authority, and then to the authorities that God has put over you, the human authorities that God has put over you. And you see this again throughout all of the scriptures. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing as well. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, isn't Solomon the king of Israel? Isn't it very self-serving of him to say, submit to the king? Of course a king would say that. Well, yes, it is. But Solomon is writing this as someone who understands that he is a man under authority as well. That he only has his authority because it has been granted to him by God. And that's what it means in verse 2. He says, look there, I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. And what that means when he says it because of God's oath to him, he simply means that God has put him in place. That's an important thing for us to remember. You see that truth talked about in the Bible or in the New Testament as well. Um, Jesus is asked this question at various times in, in a variety of ways. At one point, and especially when it comes time to paying taxes, you know, at one point Jesus is asked, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, and that question comes because the Caesars are terrible individuals that hate the Jews. And so the Pharisees asking that question to Jesus think they can either make him, you know, get him in, in, 
in the Caesar or Romans, the Romans' bad graces, or he can kind of upset all the rest of the Jews. And so they say, you know, who, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And God said, or Jesus says, you know, bring me a coin. Who's in, who? Who's on this coin? And it was the Caesar, the, the picture of the Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Essentially what Jesus says there is, pay your taxes. <laughs> give back to those authorities what is rightfully theirs. And so Jesus understood that it was the Roman government that was going to crucify him. And he still said, do what is required of you according, you know, from the government. And then again, there's another point where the Pharisees come and say, why don't you pay the temple tax? And again, these are the religious authorities, not the governing uh, political authorities, but the, or the civil authorities, but the religious authorities. And, and Peter actually lies and says, yeah, we pay the tax. And then he comes back inside for, to the house and Jesus knew that Peter just lied. And Jesus said, Peter, why did you just lie for me? And he says, but go out, catch a fish, and in the mouth of the fish, you're going to find a coin, and that'll be enough to pay the temple tax. And so even Jesus pays a tax to the religious leaders that hated him and hated everything that Jesus stood for because Jesus submitted to authority. You see that? Even Jesus submitted to authority. Then you see this other places in the New Testament, and you don't have to turn there, but you can look it up later. Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says in the family there's authority. Husbands are head of the household. Wives are to to be submissive to the husband. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Children are to submit to their parents. And then you have the employer-employee relationship as well, that, that employees are to submit to their employers. And all of it is because God is the one that has put these people in authority. And so that is the rule that's given in this section. Submit to authority. Submit to the civil uh, authorities over you. And you say, well, wait a second. What, are there any exceptions to that rule? Absolutely there are exceptions to the rule. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament are, have lots of examples of times when it is appropriate for God's people to not submit to those authorities. So, you know, here's, and here is that exception. If you are directly asked by the civil authorities to do something contrary to the law of God, then you may not submit to the governing authority. You see, you see examples of this in the Old Testament where the prophets were asked to do things that went against the will of God and they refused to do it. And they were, they were lauded for that. You see in Exodus chapter 2 where the, the uh, midwives of the Egyptians did not obey Pharaoh because they were wanting... They were wanting the the midwives to abort these children, and they disobeyed. And God blessed them in their disobedience. And so there are things you see in the Old Testament. Then also you see it in the New Testament where uh, the disciples or the apostles tell the governing authorities, you know, we will not stop preaching the gospel because God has told us to do it. And it is inappropriate for us to do something that God said, to not do what God has commanded us to do. So are there exceptions? Yes. If you are directly asked to do something that is contrary to God's will, revealed will and his law, then you shouldn't. You should, you should submit to God rather than man. But we are required to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And there are two reasons why we should do this. First of all, it shows that you trust God. We do not live 
under the righteous rule of completely righteous people, even in the United States. And I think we have the best example of any government that could be righteous that has ever been. And yet we have wicked people that rule over us. That is just the reality that we live in. But who put them in charge? Yes, we elected them. But you know who was in charge of even our pulling the lever or pressing the button? God was the one that ordained those things. He put those people in charge. So we show our faith in God when we, when we submit to the rulers. But then also, and it just occurred to me this week that we need to submit, do things like pay our taxes. Because whenever our unrighteous government uses our taxes, uses, let me say it like this, righteous money in unrighteous ways, that adds to their judgment. That we give in righteousness, but if it's used in unrighteousness, that actually adds to the judgment that God will mete out to them. It is God's responsibility to give judgment where judgment is due, not our responsibility. And the promise that goes with us is that when we do these things, when we follow God's law, generally speaking, it will go well with us. And that's all Solomon means here. He says, look, the king's going to do what the king's going to do. Submit to the king, and it, generally speaking, will go well with you. That's the first thing we see here, that we should keep the king's commands. But then secondly, he deals with something related, but just slightly different. And he says, remember the wicked's ends in verses 10 through 13. Keep the king's commands, first of all. Now, secondly, remember the wicked's ends. If you're really concerned about, about you know, serving an unrighteous king, he says, well, just think about what's going to happen to the unrighteous people on the earth. Think about what's going to happen to the wicked. And this is one reason why I wanted us to read Psalm 73 earlier, because it deals with some of the similar themes that we see in these few verses. And remember in Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph is writing from his perspective that, that he was incredibly envious of the wicked. He thought the wicked were getting away with everything scot-free. And he saw the wicked prospering and living a long time and doing all of this stuff. And, and no one called them on it. And even he saw the wicked being praised by preachers by the prophets, by people who should have known better. And Asaph says, is it worth it? And then he goes into the temple and he sees God and he understands the end of the wicked, that they are going to get what's coming to them. And then he gets proud and arrogant and he says, well, I'm better than them. And then God humbles him in his arrogance. And then in his humility, he comes back and ultimately sees God as he really is. And he's humbled and that's, that's where he ends up. And that's the way kind of it goes for us. A lot of times we see the wicked, we get envious. And then we're reminded of what happens to the envious and then we get proud and, and on and on and on. And perhaps you have a similar feeling as Asaph begins with. But what about the wicked? You know, I come to church every week or most every week. I tithe. You know, it would be really nice if I had a little bit more money to spend with. I have a neighbor right down the street. And he doesn't give 10% to the church. Think about all that extra money that he has to have fun with. Wouldn't it be great if I had that? Wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful? And after all, what am I getting for giving all this to the church? I mean, a lousy sermon and, and you know, whatever else. I don't get very much for that. Why am I being righteous? 
Maybe you say those things and maybe that, that feeling wells up inside of you from time to time. You wish you could have just a little bit more fun. And don't you, if you're honest, just feel kind of shortchanged sometimes? Well, Solomon says to that, well, just remember what happens to the wicked. They may have their fun today. They may be praised in public today, even by unrighteous pastors and preachers that should know better. But they're ultimately not going to get away with what they're doing. And that's what Solomon says here. He goes, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, verse 12, and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Look at verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked. Those are some ominous words, aren't they? It will not be well with the wicked. And it's very, it's just a short little pithy statement. It, it just kind of is one of those things you might just gloss over. But Solomon's wor- words, they ring in my ears. It will not be well with the wicked. I think that would be a good thing for you to remember as you go forward. It will not be well with the wicked. They are going to experience at some point the utter darkness and wrath of God for their sin. That though they might be enjoying life now, though things might seem to be going well with them, that they are going to face the terror of the wrath of God one day. We need to remember that. that We don't need to be envious of the wicked. And yes, you know, you could have a little bit more fun today if you weren't righteous. But for the wicked, it will not go well for them. And for the righteous... Solomon says, but it will go well for the righteous. Into eternity, you have this short little time here where, yes, you are asked to bear your cross day by day by day. And it is not easy to do that. But it is a short little window when you compare that to eternity. Now, there is an important distinction that's made here about who are the wicked and who are the righteous. Because... In this passage, we're actually given, I think, a pretty clear picture of the, who are the wicked and who are the righteous. Where are the wicked? Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. We need to be very careful about thinking the, the good people are the ones that go to church and the wicked people are the ones that don't. That's not what this passage says because even here, the wicked ones are the ones going to church and they're doing all the right things according to what everybody sees. It's not a matter of what you're doing externally that matters. What matters is what your heart is like. And so he says there, it will go well, verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. And fear there is not an action, it's an attitude. What is your response to God? What do you like Whenever you think about God, what, do you, what, do you, what is your attitude toward God? Is it one of awe? Is it one of overwhelming uh, praise because of who he is and what he's done for you? Or is it like the wicked, someone who does not fear God but fears all sorts of other things and thinks they are in the place of God? See, that's the main difference between a righteous person and a wicked person. Righteous people are sinners. I don't know if you've noticed that, but if you're a believer, you're a sinner. And yet, God calls you righteous because He has saved you and has put the fear of God in your heart so that you will fear before Him. 
That's the difference. That's the main difference for us to learn from this. It's not necessarily an action, but it's an attitude. It's a posture of the heart, as some have said. So that's the second thing that we see. Remember the wicked's end. And then thirdly, be joyful in life's troubles. Be joyful in life's troubles. You see, you might want to rebel against the hardship of life. You might want to just revolt against those things. And what Solomon says is don't revolt against the hardship of life, but find enjoyment within the hardship of life. I love how honest Solomon here is. He says, you know, life isn't easy. Life isn't fair. Have you learned that lesson? Life isn't fair. When did you learn that lesson? When did you learn it? I remember I learned that lesson when I was really, really, really young. I think I was about six years old. It was Christmas. And, you know, we went to open up all of our presents. And there was my brother and my sister just opening all their presents and getting everything that they wanted. And here I am opening underwear and, and shirts and the wrong kind of tennis shoes and all of these things. And I'm looking at my brother's toys and my sister's toys. And I'm going, life isn't fair. And, and maybe for that moment I thought to myself, you know, what have I done wrong to deserve this kind of treatment? And as I've gotten older, no, that's not what made it unfair. You know, my brother and sister were just as rotten as I was. <laughs> but... They got what they wanted and I didn't. Have you learned that lesson that life isn't fair? It's a hard lesson for children to learn. And we are so dumb that we forget it day by day by day. And that's what Solomon says. You've seen things happen to the wicked that should happen to the righteous. And you've seen things happen to the righteous that should happen to the wicked. And life isn't fair. Life isn't fair under the sun. Life isn't fair in the way that the world operates now because sin has made a mess of the world. We have sin that indwells in us and we make a mess of the world, yes, but then some things happen to us in the world and life is not fair. And the reality is that none of us deserve anything good in this life. None of us do. And yet, God gives some people good things and he gives other people things that aren't good. So those are the realities of the things that we're living with. And in this life, you need to recognize that you may not get what you think you deserve. You may not get those things. And you need to be joyful about that. That's what Solomon says here. He says, be joyful. Verse 15, I commend joy for no man has a good thing under the sun, but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. Be joyful, not because things are hard, but be joyful because you have what you need. You have what God has given you, exactly what you need for the day. And he hasn't promised you anything more than that. And that's what Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. He says that's even the things that you should be praying for. Have joy in the things that God has given you today. Have joy in the wife that God has given you or the husband that God has given you. Have joy in the school that you go to. Or whatever it is, have joy in the parents that you have. Have joy in whatever the Lord has given you for today because it is good for you. You may not understand it. Solomon doesn't promise understanding, but he says that it is good for you to find joy in those things. And he says it's, it's actually futile for you to try to discern the will of God. It's futile for you to try to figure out 
what is the best thing for you because God has not promised to tell you those things. Look at the very end of this passage, verse 17. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. You don't know what tomorrow holds, and no one knows what tomorrow, tomorrow holds. That's just the reality of life. Uh, at one point in my life, I was a uh, roadie for a, uh, the most popular Christian band between Zachary and Baker um, in 1995 for about two weeks. Um, and I traveled with this Christian band to a revival, and they played this revival. And at the end of this revival, uh, this was not Presbyterian, it was a charismatic group. Uh, and so um, I helped them set up all this stuff. Well, at the end of it, after three days of the revival, they asked for the band and all the people that helped with the band to come up. And I remember having this weird experience of this woman coming to every member of the band and every person that helped with the band. And, and she did something I'd never heard before as a good Presbyterian. She spoke a word from God over them. And I asked a friend, I said, what's happening? He said, well, she's prophesying over it. And I was like, what is this all about? What's happening? He said, oh, she's got a word from God. She's a prophetess, and she's speaking a word from God, and she's telling us what God is going to do in our lives in the future. And he was like, come up, come up, come, come get this word from God. And I was like, all right, I've never heard of this. It's pretty weird. So I got up, and she went member by member, and we were all standing up in a row. And she, this person, and she said all the amazing things that God was going to do, this person and this person, this person, this person. And then she got to me, and she looked me in the eyes, and she turned and sat down. I didn't get a word. I guess she knew I was Presbyterian, and I didn't get anything from her. And I thought, well, that was weird. So the amazing thing is that the things that she said were going to happen haven't happened for those people. And here Solomon says she didn't get a word from God. That's not the way that God operates. That's not how things work. And as a matter of fact, world is hard. You're not going to have it all figured out, but find enjoyment in life. Uh, here's an illustration of that, another illustration that from uh, Louis Zamperini. I don't know if you remember reading this book a couple years ago or seeing the movie Unbroken about this man. He was an incredible man, World War II veteran. Uh, he was going to be the first man that broke the four-minute mile. He was in the Olympics. But every step along his life, he led an incredible life and worked really hard. Uh, he was a, a POW uh, in World War II, was, was stranded out to sea longer than anybody else was stranded to sea, was capt uh, captured by the Japanese in the Pacific, and was tortured for some of the longest uh, time and, and had the, endured the, most, uh, the hardest torture that just about any POW has ever uh, experienced and not died. And then throughout his life, when he came back from uh, World War II and came back from the POW camp, uh, he became an alcoholic and all these things because nothing was happening in his life the way that it was supposed to. And then the movie doesn't cover it. The movie just says that he was unbroken, but the book is incredible because the book says, no, he was absolutely broken at every point in his life. He never lived up until he met Jesus. And he realized that his life was not about himself, was not about him running the four-minute mile, getting the gold medal, was not about being the victor in war and all of those things. His life was about Jesus Christ. His life didn't make sense until he met Jesus. Just a reminder to us, we can rebel and revolt against what God has for us, but he's telling us, be joyful where I have you. And your life does make sense in Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, you know, where does your hope rest? Where is your hope 
this morning. If your hope is in this life, if your hope is, is in a king, if your hope is in getting what you deserve in this life, you're going to be disappointed. But if your hope is in Jesus Christ, then you will never be disappointed with this world because you know that there is more waiting for you just around the bend. And you know that there's a plan in place and you are right where God has you. And there's nothing that is out of place. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. And I pray that you would help us to remember it, uh, to live it, uh, to have it inside of us, and then to exhibit it uh, as we show it to other folks, that we trust you in the plan that you have for our life. And Lord, even in hard things and difficult things, I I don't pray that we would be uh, happy about the hard things, but that we would trust you in the hard things and find joy in this life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.